we have selected, more or less at random, four companies which are found successively on the New York Stock Exchange list. These are Eltera Corporation, a merger of Electric Autolite and Mergentala Linotype Enterprises, Emerson Electric Company, a manufacturer of electric and electronic products, Emery Air Freight, a domestic forwarder of air freight, and Emart Corporation, originally a maker of bottling machinery only, but now also in builders' hardware. There are some broad resemblances between the three manufacturing firms, but the differences will seem more significant. There should be sufficient variety in the financial and operating data to make the examination of interest. In Table 13-1 we present a summary of what the four companies were selling for in the market at the end of 1970, and a few figures on their 1970 operations. We then detail certain key ratios, which relate on the one hand to performance and on the other to price. Comment is called for on how various aspects of the performance pattern agree with the relative price pattern. Finally, we shall pass the four companies in review suggesting some comparisons and relationships and evaluating each in terms of the requirements of a conservative common stock investor. The most striking fact about the four companies is that the current price-earnings ratios vary much more widely than their operating performance or financial condition. Two of the enterprises Eltra and Emart were modestly priced at only 9.7 times and 12 times the average earnings for 1968-1970, as against a similar figure of 15.5 times for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The other two Emerson and Emery showed very high multiples of 33 and 45 times such earnings. There is bound to be some explanation of a difference such as this, and it is found in the superior growth of the favored company's profits in recent years, especially by the freight forwarder. But the growth figures of the other two firms were not unsatisfactory. For more comprehensive treatment let us review briefly the chief elements of performance as they appear from our figures. 1. Profitability a. All the companies show satisfactory earnings on their book value, but the figures for Emerson and Emery are much higher than for the other two. A high rate of return on invested capital often goes along with a high annual growth rate in earnings per share. All the companies except Emery showed better earnings on book value in 1969 than in 1961, but the Emery figure was exceptionally large in both years. B. For manufacturing companies, the profit figure per dollar of sales is usually an indication of comparative strength or weakness. We use here the ratio of operating income to sales comma as given in standard and poor as listed stock reports. Here again the results are satisfactory for all four companies, with an especially impressive showing by Emerson. The changes between 1961 and 1969 vary considerably among the companies. 2. Stability. This we measure by the maximum decline in per share earnings in any one of the past 10 years, as against the average of the three preceding years. No decline translates into 100% stability, and this was registered by the two popular concerns. But the shrinkages of Eltera and Emart were quite moderate in the poor year 1970, amounting to only 8% each by our measurement, against 7% for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 
3. Growth. The two low multiplier companies show quite satisfactory growth rates, in both cases doing better than the Dow Jones Group. The Eltera figures are especially impressive when set against its low price earnings ratio. The growth is, of course, more impressive for the high multiplier pair. 4. Financial position. The three manufacturing companies are in sound financial condition, having better than the standard ratio of $2 of current assets for $1 of current liabilities. Emery Air Freight has a lower ratio, but it falls in a different category, and with its fine record, it would have no problem raising needed cash. All the companies have relatively low long-term debt. Dilution note, Emerson Electric had $163 million of market value of low dividend. Convertible preferred shares outstanding at the end of 1970. In our analysis we have made allowance for the dilution factor in the usual way by treating the preferred as if converted into com Monday this decreased recent earnings by about 10 cents per share, or some 4%. 5. Dividends. What really counts is the history of continuance without interruption. The best record here is MRTS, which has not suspended a payment since 1902. L2S record is very good, Emerson S quite satisfactory, Emery Freight is a newcomer. The variations in payout percentage do not seem especially significant. The current dividend yield is twice as high on the cheap pair as on the dear pair comma corresponding to the price earnings ratios. 6. Price history. The reader should be impressed by the percentage advance shown in the price of all four of these issues, as me assured from the lowest to the highest points during the past 34 years. In all cases the low price has been adjusted for subsequent stock splits. Note that for the Dow Jones Industrial Average the range from low to high was on the order of 11 to 1, for our companies the spread has varied from only 17 to 1 for MRT to no less than 528 to 1 for Emery Air Freight. These manifold price advances are characteristic of most of our older common stock issues, and they proclaim the great opportunities of profit that have existed in the stock markets of the past but they may indicate also how overdone were the declines in the bear markets before 1950 when the low prices were registered. Both Eltra and Emart sustained price shrinkages of more than 50% in the 1969-70 price break. Emerson and Emery had serious, but less distressing, declines. The former rebounded to a new all-time high before the end of 1970, the latter in early 1971. General observations on the four companies. Emerson Electric has an enormous total market value, dwarfing the other three companies combined. It is one of our goodwill giants, comma, to be commented on later. A financial analyst blessed, or handicapped, with a good memory will think of an analogy between Emerson Electric and Zenith Radio, and that would not be reassuring. For Zenith had a brilliant growth record for many years. It too sold in the market for $1.7 billion, in 1966, but its professorates fell from $43 million in 1968 to only half as much in 1970, and in that year's big sell-off its price declined to 221 question mark 2 against the previous top of 89. High valuations entail high risks.
Emory Air Freight must be the most promising of the four companies in terms of future growth. If the price-earnings ratio of nearly 40 times its highest reported earnings is to be even partially justified, the past growth, of course, has been most impressive. But these figures may not be so significant for the future if we consider that they started quite small, at only $570,000 of net earnings in 1958. It often proves much more difficult to continue to grow at a high rate after volume and profits have already expanded to big totals. The most surprising aspect of Emory's story is that its earnings and market price continued to grow apace in 1970, which was the worst year in the domestic air passenger industry. This is a remarkable achievement indeed, but it raises the question whether future profits may not be vulnerable to adverse developments. Through increased competition, pressure for new arrangements between forwarders and airlines, etc. An elaborate study might be needed before a sound judgment could be passed on these points, but the conservative investor cannot leave them out of his general reckoning. Emart and Deltra Emart has done better in its business than in the stock market over the past 14 years. In 1958 it sold as high as 22 times the current earnings about the same ratio as for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Since then its profits tripled, as against a rise of less than 100% for the Dow, but its closing price in 1970 was only a third above there. 1958 high, versus 43% for the Dow. The record of Veltra is somewhat similar. It appears that neither of these companies possesses glamour, or sex appeal comma in the present market, but in all the statistical data they show up surprisingly well. Their future prospects? We have no sage remarks to make here, but this is what Standard and Poor's had to say about the four companies in 1971. Elter long-term prospects, certain operations are cyclical but an established competitive position and diversification are offsetting factors. Emerson Electric while adequately priced, at 71, on the current outlook, the shares have appeal for the long term. A continued acquisition policy together with a strong position in industrial fields and an accelerated international program suggests further sales and earnings progress. Emery Air Freight the shares appear amply priced at 57, on current prospects, but are well worth holding for the long pull. Emart although restricted this year by lower capital spending in the glass container industry, earnings should be aided by an improved business environment in 1972. The shares are worth holding, at 34. Conclusions Many financial analysts will find Emerson and Emery more interesting and appealing stocks than the other two primarily, perhaps, because of their better market action, and secondarily because of their faster recent growth in earnings. Under our principles of conservative investment the first is not a valid reason for selection that is something for the speculators to play around with. The second has validity, but within limits. Can the past growth and the presumably good prospects of Emery Air Freight justify a price more than 60 times its recent earnings? Question mark. One our answer would be, 
maybe for someone who has made an in-depth study of the possibilities of this company and come up with exceptionally firm and optimistic conclusions. But not for the careful investor who wants to be reasonably sure in advance that he is not committing the typical Wall Street error of over-enthusiasm for good performance in earnings and in the stock market. The same. Cautionary statements seem called for in the case of Emerson Electric, with a special reference to the market's current valuation of over a billion dollars for the intangible, or earning power, factor here. We should add that the electronics industry, once a fair-haired child of the stock market, has in general fallen on disastrous days. Emerson is an outstanding exception, but it will have to continue to be such an exception for a great many years in the future before the 1970 closing price will have been fully justified by its subsequent performance. By contrast, both Ultra at 27 and MRT at 33 have the earmarks of companies with sufficient value behind their price to constitute reasonably protected investments. Here the investor can, if he wishes, consider himself basically a part owner of these businesses, at a cost corresponding to what the balance sheet shows to be the money invested therein. The rate of earnings on invested capital has long been satisfactory. The stability of profits also, the past growth rate surprisingly so. The two companies will meet our seven statistical requirements for inclusion in a defensive investor's portfolio. These will be developed in the next chapter, but we summarize them as follows. 1. Adequate size. 2. A sufficiently strong financial condition. 3. Continued dividends for at least the past 20 years. 4. No earnings deficit in the past 10 years. 5. 10-year growth of at least one-third in per-share earnings. 6. Price of stock no more than 11 question mark two times net asset value. 7. Price no more than 15 times average earnings of the past three years. We make no predictions about the future earnings performance of Ultra or MART. In the investor's diversified list of common stocks, there are bound to be some that prove disappointing, and this may be the case for one or both of this pair. But the diversified list itself, based on the above principles of selection, plus whatever other sensible criteria the investor may wish to apply, should perform well enough across the years. At least, long experience tells us so. A final observation. An experienced security analyst, even if he accepted our general reasoning on these four companies, would have hesitated to recommend that a holder of Emerson or Emery exchange his shares for Eltra or Emart at the end of 1970 unless the holder understood clearly the philosophy behind the recommendation. There was no reason to expect that in any short period of time the low multiplier duo would outperform the high multipliers. The latter were well thought of in the market and thus had a considerable degree of momentum behind them, which might continue for an indefinite period. The sound basis for preferring Eltro and Demart to Emerson and Emery would be the client's considered conclusion that he preferred value-type investments to glamour-type investments. Thus, to a substantial extent, common stock investment policy must depend on the attitude of the individual investor. This approach is treated at greater length in our next chapter. Chapter 14. Stock Selection for the Defensive Investor.
it is time to turn to some broader applications of the techniques of security analysis. Since we have already described in general terms the investment policies recommended for our two categories of investors, it would be logical for us now to indicate how security analysis comes into play in order to implement these policies. The defensive investor who follows our suggestions will purchase only high-grade bonds plus a diversified list of leading common stocks. He is to make sure that the price at which he bought the latter is not unduly high as judged by applicable standards. In setting up this diversified list he has a choice of two approaches, the Dow Jones Industrial Average type of portfolio and the quantitatively tested portfolio. In the first he acquires a true cross-section sample of the leading issues, which will include both some favored growth companies, whose shares sell at especially high multipliers and also less popular and less expensive enterprises. This could be done, most simply perhaps, by buying the same amounts of all 30 of the SUs in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Dow Jones Industrial Average, 10 shares of each, at the 900 level for the average, would cost an aggregate of about $16,000.10 on the basis of the past record he might expect approximately the same future results by buying shares of several representative investment funds. His second choice would be to apply a set of standards to each purchase, to make sure that he obtains, 1, a minimum of quality in the past performance and current financial position of the company, and also, 2, a minimum of quantity in terms of earnings and assets per dollar of price. At the close of the previous chapter we listed seven such quality and quantity criteria suggested for the selection of specific common stocks. Let us describe them in order. 1. Adequate size of the enterprise. All our minimum figures must be arbitrary and especially in the matter of size required. Our idea is to exclude small companies which may be subject to more than average vicissitudes especially in the industrial field. There are often good possibilities in such enterprises but we do not consider them suited to the needs of the defensive investor, let us use round amounts, not less than $100 million of annual sales for an industrial company and, not less than $50 million of total assets for a public utility. Two. A sufficiently strong financial condition. For industrial companies, current assets should be at least twice current liabilities, a so called 2 to 1 current ratio. Also, long term debt should not exceed the net current assets, or working capital. For public utilities, the debt should not exceed twice the stock equity, at book value. 3. Earning stability. Some earnings for the common stock in each of the past 10 years. 4. Dividend record. Uninterrupted payments for at least the past 20 years. 5. Earnings growth. A minimum increase of at least one third in per share earnings in the past 10 years using three year averages at the beginning and end. 6. Moderate price earnings ratio. Current price should not be more than 15 times average earnings of the past three years. 7. Moderate ratio of price to assets. Current price should not be more than 11 question mark two times the book value last reported. However, 
a multiplier of earnings below 15 could justify a correspondingly higher multiplier of assets. As a rule of thumb we suggest that the product of the multiplier times the ratio of price to book value should not exceed 22.5. This figure corresponds to 15 times earnings and 11 question mark 2 times book value. It would admit an issue selling at only 9 times earnings and 2.5 times asset value, etc. General Comments these requirements are set up especially for the needs and the temperament of defensive investors. They will eliminate the great majority of common stocks as candidates for the portfolio, and in two opposite ways. On the one hand they will exclude companies that are, 1, too small, 2, in relatively weak financial condition, 3, with a deficit stigma in their 10-year record, and, 4, not having a long history of continuous dividends. Of these tests the most severe under recent financial conditions are those of financial strength. A considerable number of our large and formerly strongly entrenched enterprises have weakened their current ratio or over-expanded their debt, or both, in recent years. Our last two criteria are exclusive in the opposite direction, by demanding more earnings and more assets per dollar of price than the popular issues will supply. This is by no means the standard viewpoint of financial analysts. In fact most will insist that even conservative investors should be prepared to pay generous prices for stocks of the choice companies. We have expanded our contrary view above. It rests largely on the absence of an adequate factor of safety when too large a portion of the price must depend on ever-increasing earnings in the future. The reader will have to decide this important question for himself after weighing the arguments on both sides. We have nonetheless opted for the inclusion of a modest requirement of growth over the past decade. Without it the typical company would show retrogression, at least in terms of profit per dollar of invested capital. There is no reason for the defensive investor to include such companies though if the price is low enough they could qualify as bargain opportunities. The suggested maximum figure of 15 times earnings might well result in a typical portfolio with an average multiplier of, say, 12 to 13 times. Note that in February 1972 American Telephone and Telephone sold at 11 times its three-year, and current, earnings, and Standard Oil of California at less than 10 times latest earnings. Our basic recommendation is that the stock portfolio, when acquired, should have an overall earnings, price ratio the reverse of the P-E ratio at least as high as the current high-grade bond rate. This would mean a P-E ratio no higher than 13.3 against an AA bond yield of 7.5%. Application of our criteria to the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the end of 1970. All of our suggested criteria were satisfied by the Dow Jones Industrial Average issues at the end of 1970, but two of them just barely. Here is a survey based on the closing price of 1970 and the relevant figures. The basic data for each company are shown in tables 14.1 and 14.2. 1. Size is more than ample for each company. 2. Financial condition is adequate in the aggregate, but not for every company. 2. 3. Some dividend has been paid by every company since at least 1940. 5. Of the dividend records go back to the last century, 
4. The aggregate earnings have been quite stable in the past decade. None of the companies reported a deficit during the prosperous period 1961-69, but Chrysler showed a small deficit in 1970. 5. The total growth comparing three-year averages a decade apart was 77%, or about 6% per year. But five of the firms did not grow by one-third. 6. The ratio of year-end price to three-year average earnings was 839 to $55.50 or 15 to 1 right at our suggested upper limit. 7. The ratio of price to net asset value was 839 to 562 also just within our suggested limit of 11 question mark 2 to 1. If, however, we wish to apply the same 7 criteria to each individual company, we would find that only 5 of them would meet our requirements. These would be, American Can, American Telephone and Tell, Anaconda, Swift, and Woolworth. The totals for these five appear in Table 14.3. Naturally they make a much better statistical showing than the Dow Jones Industrial Average as a whole, except in the past growth rate.3. Our application of specific criteria to this select group of industrial stocks indicates that the number meeting every one of our tests will be a relatively small percentage of all listed industrial issues. We hazard the guess that about 100 issues of this sort could have been found in the Standard and Poor S stock guide at the end of 1970, just about enough to provide the investor with a satisfactory range of personal choice. The Public Utility Solution If we turn now to the field of public utility stocks we find a much more comfortable and inviting situation for the investor. Here the vast majority of issues appear to be cut out, by their performance record and their price ratios, in accordance with the defensive investor's needs as we judge them. We exclude one criterion from our tests of public utility stocks namely, the ratio of current assets to current liabilities. The working capital factor takes care of itself in this industry as part of the continuous financing of its growth by sales of bonds and shares. We do require an adequate proportion of stock capital to debt.4. In Table 14.4 we present a resume of the 15 issues in the Dow Jones Public Utility Average. For comparison, Table 14.5 gives a similar picture of a random selection of 15 other utilities taken from the New York Stock Exchange list. As 1972 began the defensive investor could have had quite a wide choice of utility common stocks, each of which would have met our requirements for both performance and price. These companies offered him everything he had a right to demand from simply chosen common stock investments. In comparison with prominent industrial companies as represented by the Dow Jones Industrial Average, they offered almost as good a record of past growth plus smaller fluctuations in the annual figures both at a lower price in relation to earnings and assets. The dividend return was significantly higher. The position of the utilities as regulated monopolies is assuredly more of an advantage than a disadvantage for the conservative investor. Under law they are entitled to charge rates sufficiently remunerative to attract the capital they need for their continuous expansion and this implies adequate offsets to inflated costs.
while the process of regulation has often been cumbersome and perhaps dilatory, it has not prevented the utilities from earning a fair return on their rising invested capital over many decades. Sold and decommissioned nuclear energy plants, nor did he foresee the consequences of bungled regulation in California. Utility stocks are vastly more volatile than they were in Graham's day, and most investors should own them only through a well-diversified, low-cost fund like the Dow Jones U.S. Utilities Sector Index Fund, ticker symbol, IDU, or Utilities Select Sector SPDR, XLU. For more information, see www.tishares.com and www.spterindex.com web link. Be sure your broker will not charge commissions to reinvest your dividends. For the defensive investor the central appeal of the public utility stocks at this time should be their availability at a moderate price in relation to book value. This means that he can ignore stock market considerations, if he wishes, and consider himself primarily as a part owner of well-established and well-earning businesses. The market quotations are always there for him to take advantage of when times are propitious either for purchases at unusually attractive low levels, or for sales when their prices seem definitely too high. The market record of the public utility index is condensed in Table 14.6, along with those of other groups indicates that there have been ample possibilities of profit in these investments in the past. While the rise has not been as great as in the industrial index, the individual utilities have shown more price stability in most periods than have other groups. It is striking to observe in this table that the relative price-earnings ratios of the industrials and the utilities have changed places during the past two decades. In a remarkable confirmation of Graham's point, the dull-sounding standard and poor S-utility index outperformed the vaunted Nasdaq Composite Index for the 30 years ending December 31, 2002. These reversals will have more meaning for the active than for the passive investor. But they suggest that even defensive portfolios should be changed from time to time especially if the securities purchased have an apparently excessive advance and can be replaced by issues much more reasonably priced. Alas! There will be capital gains taxes to pay which for the typical investor seems to be about the same as the devil to pay. Our old ally, experience, tells us here that it is better to sell and pay the tax than not sell and repent. Investing in Stocks of Financial Enterprises a considerable variety of concerns may be ranged under the rubric of financial companies. These would include banks, insurance companies, savings and loan associations, credit and small loan companies, mortgage companies, and investment companies, for example, mutual funds. It is characteristic of all these enterprises that they have a relatively small part of their assets in the form of material things such as fixed assets and merchandise inventories but on the other hand most categories have short-term obligations well in excess of their stock capital. The question of financial soundness is, therefore, more relevant here than in the case of the typical manufacturing or commercial enterprise. This, in turn, has given rise to various forms of regulation and supervision, with the design and general result of assuring against unsound financial practices. 
Broadly speaking, the shares of financial concerns have produced investment results similar to those of other types of common shares. Table 14-7 shows price changes between 1948 and 1970 in six groups represented in the Standard & Poor's Stock Price Indexes. The average for 1941-1943 is taken as 10, the base level. Today the financial services industry is made up of even more components, including commercial banks, savings and loan and mortgage financing companies, consumer finance firms like credit card issuers, money managers and trust companies, investment banks and brokerages, insurance companies, and firms engaged in developing or owning real estate, including real estate investment trusts. Although the sector is much more diversified today, Graham S. caveats about financial soundness apply more than ever. The year-end 1970 figures ranged between 44.3 for the nine New York banks and 218 for the 11 life insurance stocks. During the sub-intervals there was considerable variation in the respective price movements. For example, the New York City Bank stocks did quite well between 1958 and 1968, conversely the Spectacular Life Insurance Group actually lost ground between 1963 and 1968. These cross-movements are found in many, perhaps most, of the numerous industry groups in the Standard & Poor's indexes. We have no very helpful remarks to offer in this broad area of investment other than to counsel that the same arithmetical standards for price in relation to earnings and book value be applied to the choice of companies in these groups as we have suggested for industrial and public utility investments. Railroad Issues The railroad story is a far different one from that of the utilities. The carriers have suffered severely from a combination of severe competition and strict regulation. Their labor cost problem has of course been difficult as well, but that has not been confined to railroads. Automobiles, buses, and airlines have drawn off most of their passenger business and left the rest highly unprofitable. The trucks have taken a good deal of their freight traffic. More than half of the railroad mileage of the country has been in bankruptcy, or trusteeship, at various times during the past 50 years. But this half-century has not been all downhill for the carriers. There have been prosperous periods for the industry, especially the war years. Some of the lines have managed to maintain their earning power and their dividends despite the general difficulties. The Standard & Poor's Index advanced sevenfold from the low of 1942 to the high of 1968, not much below the percentage gain in the Public Utility Index. The bankruptcy of the Penn Central Transportation Co., our most important railroad, in 1970 shocked the financial world. Only a year and two years previously the stock sold at close to the highest price level in its long history and it had paid continuous dividends for more than 120 years. On p. 423 below we present a brief analysis of this railroad to illustrate how a competent student could have detected the developing weaknesses in the company's picture and counseled against ownership of its securities, the market level of railroad shares as a whole was seriously affected by this financial disaster. 
it is usually unsound to make blanket recommendations of whole classes of securities, and there are equal objections to broad condemnations. The record of railroad share prices in Table 14.6 shows that the group as a whole has often offered chances for a large profit. But in our view the great advances were in themselves largely unwarranted, let us confine our suggestion to this, there is no compelling reason for the investor to own railroad shares, before he buys any he should make sure that he is getting so much value for his money that it would be unreasonable to look for something else instead. Selectivity for the defensive investor. Every investor would like his list to be no better or more promising than the average. Hence the reader will ask whether, if he gets himself a competent advisor or security analyst, he should not be able to count on being supplied with an investment package of really superior merits. After all, comma, he may say, the rules you have outlined are pretty simple and easy going. A highly trained analyst ought to be able to use all his skill and techniques to improve substantially on something as obvious as the Dow Jones list. If not, what good are all his statistics, calculations, and pontifical judgments? Question mark. Suppose, as a practical test, we had asked a hundred security analysts to choose the best five stocks in the Dow Jones average, to be bought at the end of 1970 few would have come up with identical choices and many of the lists would have differed completely from each other. This is not so surprising as it may at first appear. The underlying reason is that the current price of each prominent stock pretty well reflects the salient factors in its financial record plus the general opinion as to its future prospects. Hence the view of any analyst that one stock is a better buy than the rest must arise to a great extent from his personal partialities and expectations, or from the placing of his emphasis on one set of factors rather than on another in his work of evaluation. If all analysts were agreed that one particular stock was better than all the rest, that issue would quickly advance to a price which would offset all of its previous advantages. Our statement that the current price reflects both known facts and future expectations was intended to emphasize the double basis for market valuations. Corresponding with these two kinds of value elements are two basically different approaches to security analysis. To be sure, every competent analyst looks forward to the future rather than backward to the past and he realizes that his work will prove good or bad depending on what will happen and not on what has happened. Nevertheless, the future itself can be approached in two different ways, which may be called the way of prediction, or projection, and the way of protection. Those who emphasize prediction will endeavor to anticipate fairly accurately just what the company will accomplish in future years in particular whether earnings will show pronounced and persistent growth. These conclusions may be based on a very careful study of such factors as supply and demand in the industry or volume, price, and costs or else they may be derived from rather naive projection of the line of past growth into the future. If these authorities are convinced that the fairly long-term prospects are unusually favorable, they will almost always recommend the stock for purchase without paying too much regard to the level at which it is selling. Such for example, was the general attitude with respect to the air transport stocks an attitude that persisted for many years despite the distressingly bad results often shown after 1946. 
In the introduction we have commented on the disparity between the strong price action and the relatively disappointing earnings record of this industry. By contrast, those who emphasize protection are always especially concerned with the price of the issue at the time of study. Their main effort is to assure themselves of a substantial margin of indicated present value above the market price which margin could absorb unfavorable developments in the future. Generally speaking, therefore, it is not so necessary for them to be enthusiastic over the company's long-run prospects as it is to be reasonably confident that the enterprise will get along. The first, or predictive, approach could also be called the qualitative approach since it emphasizes prospects, management, and other non-measurable, albeit highly important, factors that go under the heading of quality. The second, or protective, approach may be called the quantitative or statistical approach, since it emphasizes the measurable relationships between selling price and earnings, assets, dividends, and so forth. Incidentally, the quantitative method is really an extension into the field of common stocks of the viewpoint that security analysis has found to be sound in the selection of bonds and preferred stocks for investment. In our own attitude and professional work we were always committed to the quantitative approach. From the first we wanted to make sure that we were getting ample value for our money in concrete, demonstrable terms. We were not willing to accept the prospects and promises of the future as compensation for a lack of sufficient value in hand. This has by no means been the standard viewpoint among investment authorities. In fact, the majority would probably subscribe to the view that prospects, quality of management, other intangibles, and the human factor far outweigh the indications supplied by any study of the past record, the balance sheet, and all the other cold figures. Thus this matter of choosing the best stocks is at bottom a highly controversial one. Our advice to the defensive investor is that he let it alone. Let him emphasize diversification more than individual selection. Incidentally, the universally accepted idea of diversification is, in part at least, the negation of the ambitious pretensions of selectivity. If one could select the best stocks unerringly, one would only lose by diversifying. Yet within the limits of the four most general rules of common stock selection suggested for the defensive investor, on pp. 114-115, there is room for a rather considerable freedom of preference. At the worst the indulgence of such preferences should do no harm, beyond that, it may add something worthwhile to the results. With the increasing impact of technological developments on long-term corporate results, the investor cannot leave them out of his calculations. Here, as elsewhere, he must seek a mean between neglect and overemphasis. Chapter 15. Stock Selection for the Enterprising Investor In the previous chapter we have dealt with common stock selection in terms of broad groups of eligible securities from which the defensive investor is free to make up any list that he or his advisor prefers, provided adequate diversification is achieved. Our emphasis in selection has been chiefly on exclusions advising on the one hand against all issues of recognizably poor quality, and on the other against the highest quality issues if their price is so high as to involve a considerable speculative risk. In this chapter, addressed to the enterprising investor, 
we must consider the possibilities and the means of making individual selections which are likely to prove more profitable than an across-the-board average. What are the prospects of doing this successfully? We would be less than frank, as the euphemism goes, if we did not at the outset express some grave reservations on this score. At first blush the case for successful selection appears self-evident. To get average results e.g. Equivalent to the performance of the GIA should require no special ability of any kind. All that is needed is a portfolio identical with, or similar to, those 30 prominent issues. Surely, then, by the exercise of even a moderate degree of skill derived from study, experience, and native ability it should be possible to obtain substantially better results than the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Yet there is considerable and impressive evidence to the effect that this is very hard to do, even though the qualifications of those trying it are of the highest. The evidence lies in the record of the numerous investment companies, or funds, which have been in operation for many years. Most of these funds are large enough to command the services of the best financial or security analysts in the field, together with all the other constituents of an adequate research department their expenses of operation, when spread over their ample capital, average about one-half of one percent a year thereon, or less. These costs are not negligible in themselves, but when they are compared with the approximately 15 percent annual overall return on common stocks generally in the decade 1951-1960, and even the 6% return in 1961-1970, they do not bulk large. A small amount of superior selective ability should easily have overcome that expense handicap and brought in a superior net result for the fund shareholders. Taken as a whole, however, the all-common stock funds failed over a long span of years to earn quite as good a return as was shown on Standard & Poor S500 stock averages or the market as a whole. This conclusion has been substantiated by several comprehensive studies. To quote the latest one before us, covering the period 1961-1968. It appears from these results that random portfolios of New York Stock Exchange stocks with equal investment in each stock performed on the average better over the period than did mutual funds in the same risk class. The differences were fairly substantial for the low and medium risk portfolios, 3.7% and 2.5% respectively per annum, but quite small for the high risk portfolios, 0.2% per annum. One. As we pointed out in Chapter 9, these comparative figures in no way invalidate the usefulness of the investment funds as a financial institution. For they do make available to all members of the investing public the possibility of obtaining approximately average results on their common stock commitments, for a variety of reasons. Most members of the public who put their money in common stocks of their own choice failed to do nearly as well. But to the objective observer the failure of the funds to better the performance of a broad average is a pretty conclusive indication that such an achievement, instead of being easy, is in fact extremely difficult. Why should this be so? We can think of two different explanations, each of which may be partially applicable. 
The first is the possibility that the stock market does in fact reflect in the current prices not only all the important facts about the company's past and current performance, but also whatever expectations can be reasonably formed as to their future. If this is so, then the diverse market movements which subsequently take place and these are often extreme must be the result of new developments and probabilities that could not be reliably foreseen. This would make the price movements essentially fortuitous and random. To the extent that the foregoing is true, the work of the security analyst however intelligent and thorough must be largely ineffective, because in essence he is trying to predict the unpredictable. The very multiplication of the number of security analysts may have played an important part in bringing about this result. With hundreds, even thousands, of experts studying the value factors behind an important common stock, it would be natural to expect that its current price would reflect pretty well the consensus of informed opinion on its value. Those who would prefer it to other issues would do so for reasons of personal partiality or optimism that could just as well be wrong as right. We have often thought of the analogy between the work of the host of security analysts on Wall Street and the performance of master bridge players at a duplicate bridge tournament. The former tried to pick the stocks most likely to succeed, the latter to get top score for each hand blade. Only a limited few can accomplish either aim. To the extent that all the bridge players have about the same level of expertness, the winners are likely to be determined by breaks of various sorts rather than superior skill. On Wall Street the leveling process is helped along by the Freemasonry that exists in the profession, under which ideas and discoveries are quite freely shared at the numerous get-togethers of various sorts. It is almost as if, at the analogous bridge tournament, the various experts were looking over each other's shoulders and arguing out each hand as it was played. The second possibility is of a quite different sort. Perhaps many of the security analysts are handicapped by a flaw in their basic approach to the problem of stock selection. They seek the industries with the best prospects of growth, and the companies in these industries with the best management and other advantages. The implication is that they will buy into such industries and such companies at any price, however high, and they will avoid less promising industries and companies no matter how low the price of their shares. This would be the only correct procedure if the earnings of the good companies were sure to grow at a rapid rate indefinitely in the future, for then in theory their value would be infinite. And if the less promising companies were headed for extinction, with no salvage, the analysts would be right to consider them unattractive at any price. The truth about our corporate ventures is quite otherwise. Extremely few companies have been able to show a high rate of uninterrupted growth for long periods of time. Remarkably few, also, of the larger companies suffer ultimate extinction. For most, their history is one of vicissitudes, of ups and downs, of change in their relative standing. In some the variations from rags to riches and back have been repeated on almost a cyclical basis the phrase used to be a standard one applied to the steel industry for others spectacular changes have been identified with deterioration or improvement of management. How does the foregoing inquiry apply to the enterprising investor who would like to make individual selections that will yield superior results? 
it suggests first of all that he is taking on a difficult and perhaps impracticable assignment. Readers of this book, however intelligent and knowing, could scarcely expect to do a better job of portfolio selection than the top analysts of the country. But if it is true that a fairly large segment of the stock market is often discriminated against or entirely neglected in the standard analytical selections, then the intelligent investor may be in a position to profit from the resultant undervaluations. But to do so he must follow specific methods that are not generally accepted on Wall Street, since those that are so accepted do not seem to produce the results everyone would like to achieve. It would be rather strange if with all the brains that work profession ally in the stock market there could be approaches which are both sound and relatively unpopular. Yet our own career and reputation have been based on this unlikely fact. A Summary of the Graham Newman Methods To give concreteness to the last statement, it should be worthwhile to give a brief account of the types of operations we engaged in during the 30-year life of Graham Newman Corporation between 1926 and 1956.These were classified in our records as follows. Arbitrages, the purchase of a security and the simultaneous sale. In this section, as he did also on pp. 363-364, Graham is summarizing the efficient market hypothesis. Recent appearances to the contrary. The problem with the stock market today is not that so many financial analysts are idiots, but rather that so many of them are so smart. As more and more smart people search the market for bargains, that very act of searching makes those bargains rarer and, in a cruel paradox, makes the analysts look as if they lack the intelligence to justify the search. The market's valuation of a given stock is the result of a vast, continuous, real-time operation of collective intelligence. Most of the time, for most stocks, that collective intelligence gets the valuation approximately right. Only rarely does Graham S. Mr. Market, see Chapter 8, send prices wildly out of whack. Graham launched Graham Newman Corporation in January 1936, and dissolved it when he retired from active money management in 1956. It was the successor to a partnership called the Benjamin Graham Joint Account, which he ran from January 1926, through December 1935. Stock Selection for the Enterprising Investor 381 Of one or more other securities into which it was to be exchanged under a plan of reorganization, merger, or the like. Liquidations, purchase of shares which were to receive one or more cash payments in liquidation of the company's assets. Operations of these two classes were selected on the twin basis of, a, a calculated annual return of 20% or more, and, b, argument that the chance of a successful outcome was at least 4 out of 5. Related hedges the purchase of convertible bonds or convertible preferred shares, and the simultaneous sale of the common stock into which they were exchangeable. The position was established at close to a parity basis i.e., at a small maximum loss if the senior issue had actually to be converted and the operation closed out in that way. But a profit would be made if the common stock fell considerably more than the senior issue, and the position closed out in the market net current asset, or bargain, issues, 
The idea here was to acquire as many issues as possible at a cost for each of less than their book value in terms of net current assets alone i.e. giving no value to the plant account and other assets. Our purchases were made typically at two-thirds or less of such stripped-down asset value. In most years we carried a wide diversification here at least 100 different issues. We should add that from time to time we had some large-scale acquisitions of the control type, but these are not relevant to the present discussion. We kept close track of the results shown by each class of operation. In consequence of these follow-ups we discontinued two broader fields, which were found not to have shown satisfactory overall results. The first was the purchase of apparently attractive issues based on our general analysis which were not obtainable at less than their working capital value alone. The second were unrelated hedging operations, in which the purchase security was not exchangeable for the common shares sold. Such operations correspond roughly to those recently embarked on by the new group of hedge funds in the investment company field. In an unrelated hedge involves buying a stock or bond issued by one company and short selling, or betting on a decline in, a security issued by a diff. 382. Both cases a study of the results realized by us over a period of 10 years or more led us to conclude that the profits were not sufficiently dependable and the operations not sufficiently headache-proof to justify our continuing them. Hence from 1939 on our operations were limited to self-liquidating situations, related hedges, working capital bargains, and a few control operations. Each of these classes gave us quite consistently satisfactory results from then on, with the special fiat that the related hedges turned in good profits in the bear markets when our undervalued issues were not doing so well. We hesitate to prescribe our own diet for any large number of intelligent investors. Obviously, the professional techniques we have followed are not suitable for the defensive investor, who by definition is an amateur. As for the aggressive investor, perhaps only a small minority of them would have the type of temperament needed to limit themselves so severely to only a relatively small part of the world of securities. Most active-minded practitioners would prefer to venture into wider channels. Their natural hunting grounds would be the entire field of securities that they felt, a, were certainly not overvalued by conservative measures, and, b, appeared decidedly more attractive because of their prospects or past record, or both than the average common stock. In such choices they would do well to apply various tests of quality and price reasonableness along the lines we have proposed for the defensive investor. But they should be less inflexible, permitting a considerable plus in one factor to offset a small black mark in another. For example, he might not rule out a company which had shown a deficit in a year such as 1970, if large average earnings and other important attributes made the stock look cheap. The enterprising investor may confine his choice to industries and companies about which he holds an optimistic view, but we counsel strongly against paying a high price for a stock, in relation to earn. Ings and assets, because of such enthusiasm.
If he followed our philosophy in this field he would more likely be the buyer of important cyclical enterprises such as steel shares perhaps when the current situation is unfavorable, the near-term prospects are poor, and the low price fully reflects the current pessimism. Secondary Companies Next in order for examination and possible selection would come secondary companies that are making a good showing, have a satisfactory past record, but appear to hold no charm for the public. These would be enterprises on the order of Eltra and MRT at their 1970 closing prices. See Chapter 13 above, there are various ways of going about locating such companies. We should like to try a novel approach here and give a reasonably detailed exposition of one such exercise in stock selection. Ours is a double purpose. Many of our readers may find a substantial practical value in the method we shall follow, or it may suggest comparable methods to try out. Beyond that what we shall do may help them to come to grips with the real world of common stocks, and introduce them to one of the most fascinating and valuable little volumes in existence. It is Standard and Poor's Stock Guide, published monthly, and made available to the general public under annual subscription. In addition many brokerage firms distribute the guide to their clients, on request. The great bulk of the guide is given over to about 230 pages of condensed statistical information on the stocks of more than 4,500 companies. These include all the issues listed on the various exchanges, say 3,000, plus some 1,500 unlisted issues. Most of the items needed for a first and even a second look at a given company appear in this compendium. From our viewpoint the important missing datum is the net asset value, or book value, per share, which can be found in the larger standard and poorest volumes and elsewhere. The investor who likes to play around with corporate figures will find himself in clover with the stock guide. He can open to any page and see before his eyes a condensed panorama of the splendors and miseries of the stock market, with all-time high and low prices going as far back as 1936, when available. He will find companies that have multiplied their price 2,000 times from the minuscule low to the majestic high. For prestigious IBM the growth was only 333 times in that period, he will find, not so exceptionally, a company whose shares advanced from 3 question mark 8 to 68, and then fell back to 3.2 in the dividend record column he will find one that goes back to 1791 paid by Industrial National Bank of Rhode Island, which recently saw fit to change its ancient corporate name.